Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Ed Bacher. Ed, thanks for joining. You're welcome, my pleasure. It's awesome to have you. Uh, for audience that don't know Ed, Ed's at Google as a staff technical writer. He works on probably a variety of products. I actually don't know which products he works on, but we won't cover that. What I'm excited about to hear from Ed is his background coming to technical writing uh, how there's overlap between technical writing and software engineering, uh, and what aspiring technical writers should think about when developing skills uh, that have you know, led to Ed's success in his career. So Ed, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background and how you came to technical writing? Sure. I, um, I think, I mean, I, I think the, the title of your podcast, The Accidental Engineer, is interesting, uh, although I'm not I mean, I, I think technical writers in a, to a large degree are engineers in many cases. And most technical writers, I think, come to technical writing uh, kind of accidentally. I mean, we don't usually, uh, although there are programs in technical writing now, a lot of technical writers started out doing something else, uh, studying something else. And um, eventually through some combination of interest and in, in writing and interest in technology come to tech writing. And that's certainly the case for me. I was in college, I was a physics major and ended up teaching physics for several years. Uh, went back to graduate school in engineering, actually became an engineer for a while. And um, then I did uh, sort of an internship in tech writing because I was interested in in communication and teaching folks and stuff. And, uh, and then I, I eventually left, left engineering for a while um, and uh, came back and decided to, to focus on tech writing and got into software, uh, doing software tech writing and also learning something uh, about software. My, my, background in software has been kind of haphazard, but um, I've picked up some 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 semblance of computer science knowledge uh, gradually through doing software tech writing. So, Well, I'd love to hear about the leaving and coming back to the industry in a moment. For our audience that don't know what technical writing is, though, you are our first guest on the show as a technical writer. Can you give people a sense of what that job title entails, what that job function entails in businesses? Sure. I think tech writing covers a wide range of, uh, of, of activities. Uh, I think most people think of tech writing as uh, people who write user manuals for software like um, you know, Microsoft Word or uh, Excel or, or Google Sheets or something like that. And that certainly is one aspect of tech writing. Uh, there are plenty of tech writers doing what we call end user documentation. Um, what I'm doing mostly is writing uh, developer documentation for engineers at Google. Uh, so this is internal to Google and um, really to help folks um, who are actually um, writing software to understand how to use the software that they're they're using to build their build their products, and uh, that's probably the most technical form of tech writing because you're really trying to understand 
understand the software, understand how it goes together, and uh, explain it to, to folks who aren't familiar with that uh, in, a, in a way that helps them helps them use it. So I think the goal, really the goal of tech writing is to help people get something done with things that are fairly complex. So one of the topics that you introduced me to is in relation to the curse of knowledge. And for our audience members that might not be familiar with that uh, plague upon the technical writing community, what is the, what is the curse of knowledge? The curse of knowledge is something that I think a lot of tech writers talk about and think about often. And it's something that, uh, that affects not only tech writers, it affects software engineers and engineers of, of all stripes. Uh, because you, you, you work on something for weeks or months and you become very familiar with it to the point where when you're trying to explain it to somebody else, you make a lot of assumptions about what they know. And it's, it's dangerous to do that because then you, you stop putting yourself in the beginner's shoes and trying to explain the basics. And uh, as a tech writer, it's very dangerous to fall into that curse of knowledge because then you, you start just assuming, oh, everybody knows what such and such means. And as soon as you find yourself saying that, oh, everybody knows this, you got to step back and ask yourself, wait a second, does everybody really know this? And how much do I need to explain it? Um, in some cases, people do know what it is. You know, you don't generally need to explain what HTML is or JavaScript is to a software engineering audience. But if your audience is, um, you know, eighth graders who've never seen uh, the, the guts of the web, then you probably need to talk about that. So part of the curse of knowledge is thinking about who your audience is and what they know, what they don't know, and what you're trying to teach them. Um, but it's a dangerous, it's a very dangerous trap and, uh, it's, it's tough for tech writers as well as any engineers who are trying to explain their, their product to somebody else. seems like there could be informal or formal tools that, uh, tech writers can use to survey audiences and, uh, or maybe kind of choose your own adventure style technical writing that allows uh, allows you to tailor the level of uh, context that your audience has to what they end up uh, reading is that are there such tools whether formally or informally or processes there are there are well there are there are both tools and processes I think that you know sometimes we'll work with um, well do it ourselves or work with um, um, program managers and stuff to survey, actually survey the audience, or we'll go and talk to, uh, if we can talk to customers ourselves and get some sense of um, what they're looking for or what they're missing in terms of documentation. Um, so that's a good tool is talk to your audience. Um, in terms of processes, there are, uh, you know, you, you're, if you're writing a set of documentation, 
there's a pretty standard, um, you know, sort of progression of, you know, introduce the concepts, um, provide some kind of a getting started guide and uh, some tutorials uh, about using various uh, features of the software. And, and those can get progressively more involved and, and more difficult. And then also providing some kind of uh, reference, you know, if it's an operating system or something like that, providing a reference guide that really goes into the gory details. Um, so you want to have a range of, uh, of, of topics that will, will satisfy everybody from the rank beginner to the expert who just needs to look at, um, look at what's going on. Um, and I think if you, again, if you, if you, if you assume that everybody knows what's going on and you just provide a reference guide, people are going to get lost and, uh, and that's not a good thing. I mean, you can see this on, um, you know, if you look at a lot of software uh, on GitHub, there's often a, just the code. And it's very difficult to figure out what's going on if you don't, if you're not already familiar with it. So that's a, that's a, common, that's a common complaint among software engineers is lack of documentation. Uh, I think it's common everywhere. <laughs> I can I can second that for sure. I know that GitHub uh, evangelized, uh, or one of the co-founders of GitHub evangelized so-called README-driven development as a sort of uh, joke on test-driven development or behavior-driven development, the idea being that uh, instead of writing any software, you write a README first. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is practiced outside of GitHub. I mean, they don't seem to, you know, guide you strongly to creating a README when you initially create a GitHub repo, as I most recently recall using GitHub. But uh, there, there's definitely a, an effort to prioritize having a, a sort of introductory human-readable uh, text uh, to read before diving into a code base on GitHub. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I think, I mean, I, the, of a lot of the repos that I've looked at on GitHub, the, including my own, the README, the README files are pretty sketchy. Um, but ideally, they'll lead you to, uh, you know, some kind of pointer to how the code is structured or to other documentation. Um, and I think I think that's actually appropriate. I think Readmes uh, should not be. Uh, should not be neglected and they shouldn't be so brief as to be useless, but uh, I think they should be brief and point to other stuff. Uh, and that's good. But, but what you bring up is an interesting concept of readme driven documentation. I think, um, or readme driven software is, you know, the, the idea of documenting your software first and then implementing is kind of like, I don't know if you're a Java programmer, but, um, I know I worked at a startup one time and uh, we tried to develop uh, some Java software by writing all the interfaces and the Java doc first so that we knew what the behavior was supposed to be. We tried to define what the behavior was supposed to be before we wrote uh, the software. And that's, again, I, I think that's a, that's a noble goal, but something that that is seldom seldom done you know usually you dive in you write something and um 
then you maybe document it later. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I mean, maybe the nearest thing could be behavior-driven development, which is uh, advocates of behavior-driven dri development have come up with their own human-readable syntax for uh, reading, uh, writing code as English language or natural human language and it mapping to some code. Uh, ah. It hasn't really been adopted very widely, but one thing I want to make sure that I touch on is uh, I'd be, I'd feel very guilty for not touching <laughs> on it is how I came across Ed. Ed built a very popular tool uh, for converting from a Google Doc into Markdown, and um, I want to applaud Google for creating such an amazing tool as Google Docs. Um, and I also want to applaud Ed specifically for creating Google Docs to Markdown, which is a uh, I think it's a G Suite plugin that I'll include a link in the show notes, uh, but it allows you to, you know, have authored your documentation in Google Docs and uh, convert it to Markdown for use in uh, maybe a README <laughs> or other Markdown-based documentation, maybe uh, maybe Sphinx or MakeDocs or a variety of static site generators. So um, if you haven't, audience, check it out. It's a great tool. Um, is there any kind of backstory about how uh, you came to build it? What itch you were scratching in building it, Ed? Oh yeah, I think uh, there's definitely a backstory. Um, we, as you might imagine, we use Google Docs uh, fairly heavily at Google to draft documentation. And we had, uh, this was several years ago now, it's taken me a while to get to the point of uh, releasing this add-on um, externally, but we were converting a, a pile of Google Docs into um, web pages um, and, and Markdown specifically. And there was a script available um, that another Googler had written uh, that was actually pretty helpful, but kind of converted Google Docs to basic Markdown, but it still required a, a fair amount of handwork to get it into shape to publish uh, and at that time uh, the drive add-ons had just come out um, so i thought well this would be time again for uh, for need of our team to to convert uh, these google docs easily and quickly to markdown so i i took a couple weeks and wrote this add-on and it saved us a lot of time because we just it eliminated a lot of the manual work that we were having to do before and um, and I mean, the, the first version was fairly, um, well, I don't know, I haven't looked at it for a while, but it was embarrassing enough that I rewrote it and, um, and it, it, it was certainly cleaner. It was my first real big JavaScript project. So um, I'm learning, you know, as tech writers do, I'm learning as I go. And, uh, and then eventually I decided, well, this is a good tool. I wanna make it available externally. So um, it's been out as a as a G Suite add-on for a couple of year, few years now, and uh, I just um, actually uh, got approval to open source it. So the source is also available now, um, and I'm hoping that you know people will uh, make some contributions. I'm sure there are improvements to be made. Uh, <laughs> Consider this a call to arms to audience members to go check out the. <laughs> GitHub repo. I'll, that'll also be in the show notes. Are there are there any specific issues that are outstanding that you think can be addressed? One, I can speak to one actually personally. Oh, excellent. <laughs> well, I have you. Uh, 
one of the trickiest things is incorporating uh, images in a Markdown document. And uh, do you mind just explaining kind of why that's problematic in exporting from Google Doc to Markdown? Yeah, one of the things with, uh, I mean, obviously you can include images in a in a Google Doc, um, and uh, those images are those images are binary files, uh, and it is possible to. Uh, it's not possible, as far as I can tell, to actually, uh, you know, create a complete web page with those images embedded. Uh, you can with add-ons. Uh, collect those images and store them as a zip file in Drive. Uh, the problem with that is that you need to have permission to write to the user's Drive, and that's problematic just because there's there's no granular permission to just write one zip file. You need blanket permission to write to the Drive, and I'm reluctant to to ask users to grant any add-on that permission. It's, it's a little scary when you install an add-on and it asks you for permission to modify files on your drive and create files and all that kind of stuff. So while it is possible, it's, um, it's problematic from a, a permissions point of view. Um, although one thing that I, uh, one enhancement that I'm, uh, I may work on is to uh, if you have images to create a link to an image that matches the path that you would get if you go into a Google Doc and you can select, um, I forget what the, the actual yeah. menu is, but you can export to a web page. It's zipped and it'll zip all the images in a directory. And so if I'm if I make the path to the image the same as you would get in that export, it'll make it actually quite easy to just transfer that zip file and unzip it and the links should just work. So that's a, that's a, a enhancement I'm, I'm hoping to make soon. Uh, totally. and, and then it doesn't require the, the permission of having the add on actually create something in your drive. So one, one hypothetical that I I'm curious about, I use Markdown very heavily, both in my full-time job and actually in producing the Axel engineer website. Um, I'm curious if it's feasible to create an entirely Google Docs driven website where perhaps uh, Google Docs to Markdown could be uh, ad adapted to, uh, besides converting to Markdown, uh, post that Markdown to some kind of API and in turn publish a web page where the Markdown could be converted to a web page. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that feasible? Could that be on the roadmap of Google Docs to Markdown? That I that's uh, that's intriguing, and I off the top of my head, I don't know if it's possible. But you know, as you know, as a software engineer, if you can think about it, you probably might be able to do it. It's just a question. <laughs> Anything of is possible. Finding the right APIs, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. We should check that out. I'll, I'll I'll follow up after, or if our audience knows, they they can get a hold of us. Yeah. Uh, one one of the one of the topics that we've talked about before getting on the recording was in relation to uh, different types of media. So we're, we, we just discussed some of the difficulties of uh, getting images out of a Google Doc and uh, working with Markdown and that those raw image files. Uh, 
how important are images to the technical writing that you do these days? I mean, diagrams or um, even just uh, engaging photos <laughs> to get people to engage with the, the content you might be producing. Are, are, are you primarily working in text these days? Or are you branching out into other types of media? That's a good question. I, I'd say um, I'm, I'm primarily, uh, I'm a pretty old school text-based person. Uh, just, I think my, my background, uh, as you know, I, I, I worked at, I started working as a tech writer. I started working at Bell Labs and, and with some of the Unix folks. And so I'm actually a fan. I know a lot of people are not, but I'm a, I'm kind of a fan of man pages and, and, uh, sort of, um, brief and meaty documentation but i i do believe there's there's certainly a place for particularly diagrams in in technical documentation if only not only for their explanatory value um in terms of uh showing uh concepts and whatnot but also just to sometimes to break up uh you know what we call a wall of text uh you know i mean honestly most people including myself don't really want to read documentation if they don't have to. Um, you know, I tend to, I tend to go to documentation as a last resort uh, if I get stuck. And if I do go to documentation, it's nice if it's engaging and if it's got some useful diagrams and and whatnot. So yeah, I do use. Um, again, I'm Google. I tend to use pretty simple Google drawings and diagrams, um, but they work well. Um, and now that, um, now that we're all working at home, uh, we are exploring lots of different ways of delivering, um, information in terms of, you know, we, we actually teach some, some classes occasionally. So we're, we're doing, um, we're doing, uh, online video conferences for delivering some training and we're make, starting to make recordings. So yeah, there's a place for, um, video diagrams, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I tend not to, or before this happened, I, I tended to not like video as part of documentation, but I think there is a place even within text documents for short videos, particularly if you're demonstrating something that's, you know, fairly complex and visual. I mean, even in, in, you know, in software development, there's, there's a lot of um, IDEs that are fairly complicated. And instead of explaining it in three paragraphs, having a short video that shows what's going on would be probably way more helpful um, in terms of you can actually see where the components are and how to use it and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's good to, to mix it up somewhat, but, um, I think it does come back to, uh, to the text content as well. That's gotta be, that's gotta be solid. Yeah. One, I, there's an entire industry outside of Google that kind of games, the Google search algorithm, search engine optimization, and mm -hmm. it's a, and, and primarily text-based. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, a lot easier to index text content for keyword-based searches if it's text content versus with audio or still images or video, you need to perform some type of conversion of audio or image or video into text uh, descriptions in order to make it discoverable via keyword text. Uh, 
we're not we're not quite yet at the point where you can be looking at something and pull up a Wikipedia page about it. Oh, <laughs> maybe we are. Our audience can correct me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's one of the topics I'm I'm curious about is uh, discoverability. I think a lot of people who uh, work as software engineers and read a lot of documentation in their day to day have been bitten by the problem of discovering old versions of documentation. And I think one of the problems our audience might be curious about is and hearing from you about is the versioning problem of uh, as APIs maybe change or client software behavior changes, um, what are some of the techniques that industry uses to um, better guide (laughs) uh, errant uh, visitors of documentation to the right version that they should be reading about or uh, notify of changes being made to software contracts? Oh boy, that's that's a uh, that's an important. You, you can topic. break it down <laughs> into smaller pieces. Yeah, no, that's that's an important topic and a big topic. I mean, I know uh, just for myself, uh, if I'm looking for documentation, um, you know, just documentation on the web for for software, or you know, if I'm trying to figure out how to do something, say in JavaScript, uh, you know, I'm probably a lot like everybody else. I will. Google how to do something and I'll come up with a, uh, a stack overflow page that uh, will tell me something about how to do it. I think, and particularly in that case with example of stack overflow, um, I think as a consumer of, of technical documentation, you need to be very skeptical about um, what you see. Uh, you know, in stack overflow, I look at something and I'll be like, oh, this is great, but it's Stack Overflow, so it might be wrong, <laughs> um, or it might be out of date, or it might be totally crazy and not the best way to do things. Um, now that's Stack Overflow, which is you know completely uh, crowd-driven, um, but in terms of official documentation, um, yeah, I think I mean if you're putting if you're putting documentation out there on the web, and you've got uh, different versions. Um, and of course, a lot of times there's, I'm thinking of say Python has several different versions that are out there and, uh, you know, you might be using Python two or you might be using Python three. And if you get to the wrong version, you're going to be in trouble. Um, obviously if, if you deprecate something, um, it'd be good to take down the documentation or at least put a prominent notice on it saying, this is old, you know, the new version is here. Um, uh, you know, partly with the, in, in that kind of example, if you're, if you're searching for something, hopefully the search engine is going to bring up the things that are most relevant to your search. Um, but again, you, you, you can't always trust, um, that what you get is actually the most, the most relevant. So. I mean, it's kind of a, I hate to say this, but it's almost like a buyer beware sort of thing where you got to be skeptical of the results you get. Um, but on the, on the tech writing side, um, we should be, you know, try and be pruning documentation that is, is completely irrelevant um, and get rid of it ideally. But of course that doesn't happen. I mean, you find stuff that's way out of date uh, often. And that's too bad. 
<laughs> One area that I could see there having been big change in technical writing and how it's done might have been with adopting uh, version control and a digitized um, text-based documentation. Um, do you do you work with Git at all? I mean, one of the one of the reasons I transfer documents I've written from Google Docs into Markdown is to add them to my website under version control using Git and host it on GitHub. And using Git, you can see Git blame. You can view the version history of a file. You can see line level uh, diffs. Uh, obviously, Google Docs has a very robust and mature versioning history tool. Uh, but I, I imagine that's one benefit to developing docs under version control, like using a markdown uh, type of format over Google Docs, is that you get a little bit more versioning history. Uh, does Git work into your tool chain as a technical writer at all? Or are you predominantly staying in, um, in Google Docs land through your educating of uh, internal employees at Google? Um, that's a good question. And, um, I mean, I do use, well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't use Git a whole lot, but I, I mean, I have used GitHub for, for the, the docs to markdown. Um, I've actually used it for the, just documenting docs to markdown. And now, uh, I'm using it in the same repository for the open sourcing it. And you're right. The, the big advantage of using a text format like markdown is that you get really great version control and great ability to uh, look at diffs from different versions uh, or compare different versions using using good diff tools um, and we uh, i mean there's a there's a big movement now it's very popular not just at google but elsewhere in tech writing um, called the docs as code movement where documentation is stored as text files along often in the same repository as code and it's exactly as you say the uh the big reason is to have the same tool chain and to have the ability to uh to to look at look at uh diffs between different versions uh, and to preserve to preserve old versions to have the blame layer where you can see who made changes to what, um, not so much. I mean, the blame layer is, is uh, it, you know, it's terribly named because, I mean, you can uh, figure out who did something, but it's not so much to blame them usually. It's to to know who to contact and say, hey, um, what did you mean when you said this? Or I don't understand this or whatever. Um, but attribution might be a better attribution layers. Yeah. Get much, attribute. Much, <laughs> of course, attributes mean something else, but anyway, totally. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm completely there with you on the uh, version control aspect of, of, uh, text documentation. And we do have, um, I mean, we, we're doing that internally. We have some tools that, um, that, uh, we do convert our Google Docs uh, mostly to to Markdown, uh, so we have our own Docs as code uh, system. And you, as you mentioned, Google Docs has versioning, sort of, um, but it's not as powerful as uh, true version control like Git or GitHub has, uh, with you know visibility into 
easy visibility into the diffs and the document history and and um, the attribution layer, uh, etc. So um, I, I look at Google Docs as a great way to draft content and to collaborate. I mean, the, you know, sending a Google Doc around for people to comment on and getting some sort of agreement. And then when you're ready to publish, I think the way to go uh, or one way to one good way to go is to convert to doc uh, markdown or html or uh, that's probably it those are the two main things and um and then go forward not not to go back and forth um you know once you've got it into markdown leave it there make all your changes and then you have a complete record of of what what you what you've been doing to that document makes sense yeah uh Let's uh, dial back to earlier in the conversation. Um, I was going to ask you about uh, your career story, your career arc. Um, you worked at Bell Labs. Um, you left Bell Labs to do what again? And what brought you back to Bell? <laughs> so I, 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 I got out of grad school and um, went to work at Bell Labs actually as an engineer. I was a mechanical engineer for a while. And um, that's really how I got into programming. Um, and I say programming because it wasn't really computer science. I was just doing data analysis and it was all in Fortran. And uh, in retrospect, it was probably pretty primitive, but um, that's how I got interested and realized it was fun. Um, and anyway, I, I ended up leaving Bell Labs for a while. My wife and I, uh, managed a, an, an outdoor store, kind of like REI, uh, for a couple of years. And uh, we were, you know, selling climbing gear and canoes and kayaks and uh, all that kind of stuff. And we were, you know, Patagonian North Face dealer. And uh, that was really fun. And it uh, also gave me a great education in sort of customer service. I mean, we were a small, fairly small store in New Jersey. And, um, you know, it's all about when you're trying to sell, uh, expensive stuff like that. Um, you know, you have to take care of your customers. So, um, that was a good experience. Um, and then we, we, uh, had our first, our first child, our daughter and realized that, um, I mean, one thing about having kids is, uh, it makes you it makes you grow up or it forces you to grow up pretty fast it's like uh you're like oh my gosh i'm an adult i have a, a child who i am responsible for so i ended up uh deciding or we decided it, it couldn't run the outdoor store forever and uh, so i ended up going back to bell labs um, as a tech writer and uh, started doing eventually started doing software tech writing and really enjoyed that. And, and uh, I mean, I've, I've gone back and forth a little bit. I've done some development work too, but um, mostly stuck to, to tech writing there. And uh, so my, my career, you know, again, I think the accidental engineer title is, uh, is, is interesting. I mean, I think uh, most people's career is at least somewhat accidental in the, in the, in the arc that they take. And uh, mine's been, I've been lucky to do a lot of things that I've really enjoyed. Um, but it hasn't been a straight path for sure. <laughs> you, you've spoken very highly of your time at Bell. And I mean, 
Bell Labs, I, I don't know if it exists anymore in any form, but uh, what may, might have made it such a fun place to work when you were there? Well, Bell Labs, when I started at Bell Labs, it was right after the um, uh, right after the divestiture when AT&T got broken up into uh, AT&T and then a bunch of regional phone companies. And Bell Labs remained part of AT&T and has, you know, has been for a long time a sort of a legendary research and development place. And so I was really excited to go there. And eventually, actually, after I, after we, I came back to Bell Labs and I got involved in doing software tech writing, I started working with the um, the Unix research folks were trying to commercialize an operating system uh, called Inferno that was uh, that was really fun to work on. It was a, a distributed operating system that was uh, came out started around the same time as Java started becoming a big thing. Um, and Java became a big thing. Inferno did not. But it was still a great project to work on. And um, I got to work with a little bit and meet some of the folks in the Unix uh, research organization. And so it's it was kind of like, I mean, Google didn't exist, obviously, back then. But it was in in the feeling of, of the place, it was, it was kind of like Google. There was a lot of smart people, a lot of innovative stuff going on, and a lot of... Um, a lot of just fun things to work on. And I was lucky enough to, to be involved with Inferno, which ended up not being a, a hugely successful project in the end, but um, uh, it was, it was great to work on and great to meet some of those folks. I mean, I met uh, a couple of times, uh, Dennis Ritchie, Brian Kernahan, worked a little bit with Rob Pike, who's now at Google. Um, and, um, so anyway, it was it was just a neat place to be. And geographically, that was in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? No, that was in New Jersey. Um, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Bell Labs is mostly, uh, I mean, they're in different places, but mostly headquartered in New Jersey, um, where AT&T, AT&T was mostly in New Jersey as well. What? When did you move from the East Coast to the West Coast? I just, uh, when I when I got uh, the job at Google, I was living, uh, at that point I was working for a little startup in Massachusetts and we were living up in New Hampshire. And, um, I had I actually gotten laid off by that startup and, uh, started looking around and, um, I forget where I saw the job opening. It might've been LinkedIn. Um, there was a job opening at Google and, uh, I thought, well, I'll apply. I, I had applied one time before to Google and, and not heard anything back. Not nothing, literally. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll just give it a try again, see what happens. And um, anyway, I went through the process and uh, they, they had said it was the possibilities were Cambridge, New York and California. And I thought, well, I could, I could make a commute to Cambridge for Google. It's, it's a bit of a hike, but I would do it. Uh, but about halfway through the process, I said something about Cambridge and they're like, oh no, it's New York or California. And I was like, <laughs> I was like well, I, this is probably isn't going to happen anyway. So what the heck? Um, anyway, I, obviously I got, I got a job offer and, um, uh, so we were, we were all excited about it and, 
my wife is actually very adventurous and she said, well, we lived in New Jersey for a long time. Let's go to California. So um, we came to California eight, almost nine years ago now. And, um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're, you know, glad we made the move. And uh, although I think we're probably going to move back to the East coast eventually. <laughs> for, for, uh, for young ones who are just starting their careers and may have only been in one location i mean never mind our we've got an international audience as well but uh, are there certain geographies that you like more do you like do you like the northeast more than uh, california is that why you'd move back no i i the, the only the reason we we were deciding to move back to uh, probably boston is that two of our kids live in boston now and we are our youngest is is in college and we realized I live in Santa Cruz now, which is a wonderful town. Um, but we realized, well, you know, none of our kids are here in California. And we do have friends and family on the East Coast. So we thought, well, we can pretty much live anywhere. So um, I think we're, we decided, well, let's let's move back to the East Coast and we can always come visit Santa Cruz in California. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, hopefully it, it doesn't uh, get impacted by climate change too bad. I know that's a big topic in Santa Cruz is worrying about the beaches. Oh yeah. But yeah, Santa Cruz will be here and it's, uh, it's, uh, as I say, it's a wonderful place. We're not, we're not leaving Santa Cruz because we don't like it. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, we're running up on our time. Uh, I want to say thank you so much, Ed. Thank you for joining us. It's been awesome having you on. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Max. Thank you very much.